Okay. In what limit do the Fermi Dirac and Bose Einstein distributions approach the Maxwell Boltzmann distribution? When the exponential of energy minus chemi chemical potential over KT is much bigger than 1, then the factor plus or minus 1 becomes negligible. So, in particular, if the energy is bigger than the chemical potential, then that difference is much bigger than KT. So confusions. In chapter four, we added the angular momentum of two spin particles. We then had different states made of different combinations of states of up and down spins. In chapter five, we're combining states, but with equation 510. So what is the difference between these situations? So in chapter five, we're worrying about whether we're adding identical particles. So that in chapter four, that was a special case of this more general keeping track of the symmetry and anti-symmetry for fermions and bosons. Beyond the Fermi and Bose and Maxwell equations, will we be required to know any other statistics derivations? So I don't think you're going to have to do any derivations. Because if you've looked at the last year's midterm, it's just problems, like we do in class or at homework. So you can breathe a sigh of relief. Has anyone looked at last year's midterm? No. So there's a bunch of formulas on there that you don't need, <coughs> like harmonic oscillator formulas, because that won't be on, on the exam until the mid second midterm. It's just there to get you, so you won't panic when you come to the second midterm. There are formulas that you will need that aren't there, like what's the eigenvalue of L squared? Simple things you should know. So all the complicated formulas are there, and if there's something simpler than that's not there, then that's something you should know. Uh, what exactly is the chemical potential? So it's just a parameter that we use to keep track of what the total number of particles are. It's easier to do it that way from this Lagrange multiplier trick. How come electrons do not stay in the lowest possible states and only few get excited? Well, if you, if you give them energy, then they'll get excited. And depending on how much energy, they'll determine whether it's few or many. Did I miss? Can someone explain that or have a related question? OK. So last time, we were working on white dwarfs. So we'll just apply our free electron gas calculation to a white dwarf. So we have some large number of nucleons <coughs> in a star, and there are q electrons per nucleon. The total volume of the star is 4 thirds pi r cubed. And the density is the number of nucleons times the mass of a proton divided by the volume. And so we can just plug in to the formula that we derived last time. So we expressed it in terms of volume. We know the total volume is a sphere now instead of a cube. Not too complicated. So now it'll go like 1 over r squared, because it went like 1 over volume to the 2 thirds. Right? So this is the total energy of our Fermi gas. Look familiar? Now, if you have <coughs> a star's worth of mass, there's going to be a large gravitational effect. 
the electrical forces will be, the Coulomb potential will be screened because we have equal numbers of protons and electrons, but you can't screen gravity. So for an infinitesimal mass element at radius r, the gravitational potential is the mass inside that radius, divided by r times Newton's constant times the infinitesimal mass. Mass inside that radius is the density times the volume inside that radius. And the infinitesimal mass element is the spherical <laughs> shell, so it's 4 pi r squared dr times the density. So overall, we'll get rho squared times r to the fourth. And when we integrate that, we'll get the radius rho squared times the radius to the fifth, because we're integrating r to the fourth. And if we plug in, <coughs> if we write this density in terms of the, um, <coughs> the ma total mass over the volume. The volume goes like r cubed, so we'll get overall 1 over r. So the summary is we get a contribution from the Fermi gas that goes like 1 over r squared, contribution from the gravitational energy with the opposite sign, because it's a potential, attractive potential, and 1 over r. So if you imagine plotting that, <coughs> so it should look like that. At small r, the 1 over r squared term dominates. And if we go farther out, the 1 over r term negative term dominates. So there should be a stable point. So we can find that stable point by taking the derivative with respect to the radius of the star. It's given by this equation. It's just determined by these two coefficients that appeared in the Fermi energy and the gravitational energy. So we just plug in what those coefficients are and we get a cool formula. It has G Newton in it, the mass of a proton, the mass of an electron, and H bar. Yep. What kind of energy is the Fermi energy? The potential energy? It's the, we integrated k squared, the kinetic energy over all the electrons filling up the whole C. So it's just kinetic energy. So you probably never saw a formula that had G Newton and H bar in it. It's quantum gravity. Okay, so plugging in the numbers, for these guys, we get 10 to the 25 meters over the number of nucleons to the one-third power. So for a, a number of nucleons like we have in our sun, that's 10 to the 57 nucleons. So we get a radius of 10 to the 6 meters, so like 1,000 kilometers. That's a small star. That's why it's called a dwarf. Uh, we calculate the energy of the Fermi surface, remember we had an expression in terms of the radius, so now we can plug in what that radius is. We get 1.9 times 10 to the 5 electron volts. So is that a big energy or a small energy? Small compared to the rest mass of an electron, at least it's smaller. <coughs> but it's, it's the same order of magnitude, so 
sort of pushing the boundary, it's starting to get relativistic. And uh, as we increase the number of nucleons, so we consider bigger white dwarfs, we pour, dump some more stuff in the white dwarf, the radius will get smaller. That means the Fermi energy will go up, the electrons will get more relativistic. So it's worthwhile thinking <coughs> about what happens when the electrons are relativistic. So it's actually easier to take them to be very, very energetic, because dealing with this square root inside the integral would be nasty. But if we say their en kinetic energy is very much larger than their rest energy, then we can approximate their energy as the momentum times the speed of light, so like a photon. So in our Fermi surface calculation, we integrated kinetic energy over the volume of the k-space. So we'll just put in this relativistic energy instead of p squared over 2n. So when we do that integral, we'll have a different power of k. Now we get k-fermi to the fourth. And we'll get volume to the minus 4 thirds power from the, the k-fermi. We'll cancel one with the overall normalization of the size of the element of each little state. So overall, we get a factor that goes like <coughs> 1 over r, because it goes like 1 over volume to the 1 third. So now, if we compare the total energy from the Fermi gas and the gravitational potential energy, they both scale like 1 over r. So something interesting can happen. So if this number C is bigger than B, then it will just get bigger. And it will go back towards that non-relativistic calculation, because the energy will go down. But if C is less than B, then it will crunch. So there's a critical point where those two coefficients are equal. So they depend on different powers of the number of the nucleons, so the critical number is actually about 2 times 10 to the 57, not much bigger than solar mass. So that gives you 1.7 solar masses. So we made a bunch of approximations. This was assuming they were electrons were ultra-relativistic. We assumed the density in the white dwarf was constant over the entire volume. If you put in all the bells and whistles, instead of 1.7, you get 1.42. So here's the non-relativistic calculation. There was always a stable minimum. And then when you include the relativistic effects, there's a maximum mass. So it's called the Chandrasekhar limit because he was the one who was smart enough to apply quantum mechanics to stars. And he got the Nobel Prize for that. And uh, astronomers believe that out in the galaxy, there are occasionally there are white dwarfs that have a companion star, like a red dwarf. And so, stuff the the red the red giant white dwarf red giant red giant can expand when it gets hot, and stuff from the red giant gets sucked into the white dwarf. So what will happen is the mass of the white dwarf gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it sucks stuff in. And eventually it'll reach that limit. And then 
it'll collapse and you'll get a supernova. So that's called a type 1a supernova and that's what they use to measure how fast the universe is expanding. And that's what they use to conclude that the expansion of the universe is accelerating instead of slowing down like it was supposed to. That's why from that they conclude that the universe is filled with some mysterious dark energy that we have no idea what it is. And now you know why. I think we're done there. Oh, so now we can do one of our stunt to jump questions. So one of those questions was what happens? How can you have a neutron star? So say that you started with um, a bigger star than a white dwarf, like a red giant. And it burns and burns and burns its fuel. Eventually, it runs out of fuel. So the heat from that burning the fuel is what's keeping the star from collapsing. When it runs out of fuel, it's going to collapse. And if it's much heavier than this Chandrasekhar limit, it will just collapse past the white dwarf stage. So what can happen is you can take the protons and electrons and convert them into neutrons and neutrinos if you squeeze them together enough. And this is actually what is preferred to happen because if you do something else, uh, whatever else you make will be trapped inside this thing that's collapsing. But ne neutrinos can fly out, so they can take away energy out of the star. So actually, in this type of supernova, most of the energy comes out of neutrinos, not as light. Does it matter what kind of neutrinos they are? Um, not for our purposes. I mean, they can be electron. They're mostly electron neutrinos because you're starting with an electron, but there can be a small mixture of other stuff. So if we just take the calculation we just did, the only thing that's different now is that we have a star made out of neutri neutrons instead of protons, neutrons, and electrons. So replace the electron mass with the mass of a neutron, and the number of neutrons per nucleon goes to one instead of a half. You guys look stunned and amazed. So now, if we just have a bunch of neutrons, they're still fermions, so there should be a, a Fermi sphere fill up all the energy levels of the neutrons up to some energy level, just like we did with electrons. So we just change the electron mass to the neutron mass, and we can calculate in the same way as in that non-relativistic calculation what the radius of such a star would be. So just plugging in our previous formula. Now instead of m proton squared times m electron, it's m neutron cubed. So all the protons have been converted to neutrons. So that gives you 1.3 times 10 to the 23 meters over n to the one-third. So if you put in 10 to the 57, you get a radius of 12 kilometers. <coughs> Even smaller star. 
if you plug into that formula for the energy of the Fermi gas, you get 56 million electron volts. Compared to the rest energy of a neutron, which is 940 million electron volts. <coughs> so non-relativistic is even a better approximation for neutrons. Even though this is a much bigger energy, they have a much bigger mass. So who asked that? Whose question was that? Do you have a... I, um, I guess I was more curious about the interaction how you came approach on electron together and maybe outside the scope of um, well, that's that is because inside the proton is up, up, down quarks. So these three quarks, two ups, one down. And inside the neutron, there's one up and two down quarks. So what we're really doing is taking an up quark and turning it into a down quark, and taking an electron and turning it into a neutrino. The thing that does that is a W gauge boson. So that that's a weak interaction, and that's something we're saving for field theory class. But that's <coughs> you could. It's like a in some sense, it's like exchanging a photon between these guys, except that it changes the particle once you admit this W. So with it was a photon going exchange. The up quark would stay an up quark, and the electron would stay an electron. So this is a whole other set of Nobel Prizes to understand that. Now we're ready for quantum statistical mechanics. Uh, so, I yep. Have a so, I think Peyton answered this for me once, but for the neutron stars, eventually, if they keep forming more and more mass, will they eventually collapse into something else? Uh, if you go beyond their stability, then you'll end up as a black hole. I know, but so what is that? Is it just a mixture, a giant collapsed mixture of, you know, Quarks, or is it well, all of all of our approximations break down inside a black hole, where the stuff has collapsed too. Something happens, and nobody knows exactly what's happening at the center of a black hole. I was understanding that a black hole is just something with enough mass to bend light. It's completely back around. Could you not have a neutron star with enough mass to do that? Um, when, once you've got to that that density, you would be on be beyond the stability of the Fermi surface. I mean, you can <coughs> I mean, you can have a two things, mass and density. So if you have a big enough star, like you can have a you can have something that's big enough that it, it doesn't seem to be a neutron star, uh, so that it's bending light, so light can't escape from its surface. 
So the gravitational field at the point where light can no longer escape doesn't have to be um, the, the laws of the known laws of physics don't have to break down at that point. But what's happening in the center of that? So there's some sphere where light can't escape. But what's happening at the center of the sphere? No one knows what's going on there. See, out here you can, if you make the radius of your black hole big enough, everything can be perfectly nice. Here you wouldn't notice anything bad's happening as you fall through the sphere. But if once you fall through, you're going to end up there. And something really bad is going to happen. Okay, quantum statistical mechanics. So if we're in thermal e equilibrium, then we're assuming that every state with the same energy has an equal probability. And the only thing that makes this quantum statistical mechanics is counting how many ways you can arrange the particles for a fixed energy. So we'll assume that we have a bunch of energy levels, an infinite number. And as we've seen, there's some degeneracy associated with each level usually. It could be one, but typically there's some number of states with the same energy. So remember for hydrogen there was n squared levels with the same energy, or n squared states with the same energy. Now if we have a large number of particles, we can put some number into each energy level, and depending on whether they're fermions or bosons, uh, we'll have different numbers of way ways of doing that. So first we'll do the we'll call the total number of ways of putting particles into these distinct states q, and it'll be a function of the occupation numbers for each energy level. So first we'll do the calculation for classical particles. That is, non-existent particles. So if you had distinguishable particles, then you have a total number of n, and you want to put n sub 1 in the first energy level. So the number of ways of doing that is just n choose n1. Just n factorial divided by n1 factorial n minus n1 factorial. And then since there's d sub 1 degenerate states, for each one of those n sub 1 particles, you can put it in d sub 1 different degenerate states. So you have, for the first one, you have d sub 1 choices of which uh, energy, which state it is with that given energy. And then you get to make that choice for every one of those particles. So it's d sub 1 to the n sub 1 power. can calculate the total number of ways we can arrange particles with these occupation numbers. So this was for the first guy. Then for the second guy, we've already used n sub 1 
put in the first energy level, so there's n minus n sub 1 left. So we'll have n minus n1 choose n2. then there's D2 degenerate states, so we get to choose that um, n two times. And then for the third guy, there'll be n minus n, 1 minus n2. I'll run out of room. minus n3 on the bottom, d3 to n3. And the thing that we want to see is that this factor cancels that factor. <coughs> and this factor cancels that factor. So we can uh, write, put that in now. So we can write the total thing. There's an n factorial out front. And then for each energy level, there's a degeneracy to a power. Power is the number of particles in that energy level. And you divide by factorial of that number. If they were all if the particles were distinguish distinguishable. Life is much simpler. So if we have identical fermions, we have to anti-symmetrize the state. So if we have a given set of occupation numbers for each energy level, there's just one state there. So we just have to count how many ways we can put that occupation number into each of those energy levels. And there's only one particle per state, so we only have to count how to put them into the d sub n degenerate states. So we'll have d sub n choose n sub n. So for a fixed energy, there's d different states with the same energy. And we can only put one fermion into each one. So we just get to choose that many. So the total number of configurations is just the product of those factors. So D has to be bigger than N, right? Because we can't put more fermions than there are degenerate states. So we're counting factor two for spin inside this D <coughs> as part of the degeneracy. Okay, bosons. <coughs> bosons are the hardest. Take a deep breath. So now we symmetrize, but now we can have an arbitrary number of particles in each particular state. 
So for the nth level, we want to put n sub n particles into d sub n slots. We count how many ways we can do that. So in the book, he uses this trick. So it's clear with an example. We take d's 5 for our particular level, and n is 7. So we put crosses to indicate the partitions between the different degenerate states. So if I have five degenerate states, I put four crosses. And I put seven dots for the seven particles at that energy level. So I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Why four? Because now I've got five slots. So the x's are just, I'm trying to make five boxes, so the x's are telling me the division between the boxes. So let's do one more example. Instead of putting three here, I'll put two there, and then I have one left over to put in the last slot. Does everyone see why that's supposed to represent five different slots? So the x's are the dividers between the slots, which are the degenerate levels. And the dots are the actual particles. So, so you could have a box without any particle? Sure. You can have a state with no particles in it. So now we just have to calculate how many ways we can arrange that. Yeah. So this is five degenerates in one state. So this is one energy level with five degenerate states and seven particles within among those five different states. So So first of all, you can just rearrange all these dots and crosses. So there's n sub n plus d sub n minus 1 factorial ways to do that. Because <coughs> there's d sub n minus 1 crosses. But then if we interchanged this dot with that dot, it doesn't do anything because they're identical particles. So we have to divide by all the ways we can interchange the particles because we've already symmetrized. Divide by n sub n factorial. And we can also interchange this cross with that cross, because that doesn't do anything. D n minus 1 factorial. Interchanging all the crosses. So then our q function. product of all those for each energy level. What's Qn again? Q is the number of configurations with these occupation numbers for each energy level. So different ways of arranging the particles? Yes, the distinct ways. So now we want to find the most probable configuration. 
we want to find which set of n sub i's maximizes q. Which way of arranging the particles gives the most number of states? That means that's the most probable one. So you know it's possible for all the air molecules to go in one corner of the room, but the most probable thing is that they're distributed around the room. So we want to calculate the analog of that for a general system. And we want to have a fixed number of particles. So if we sum up all the individual occupation numbers, that should give us the total number of particles. Because uh, today things are non-relativistic. So we're not creating new particles. So that's a fixed number. And we're in thermal equilibrium with some fixed energy. So if we sum over the energies multiplied by the occupation numbers, we'll get the total energy. And we have a fixed amount. Can we clear that different? So because there's all these crazy products, instead of maximizing Q, we'll maximize log Q. So G is log Q. And then we get to, you guys haven't done Lagrange multipliers in some other class? Sounded like we did some people were confused. <laughs> okay, so it's just a trick. So I want to, I want to have this sum fixed, but I'm varying over these n sub n's. So this is some constraint that I want to impose. So Lagrange said the clever way to do that is to take this minus that. For the correct answer, that's supposed to be zero. So in the end, I'm gonna I'm differentiating with respect to these ends of ends. So I want to vary all these ends of ends to find the thing that maximizes this, but I want to set this the sum equal to that. So if I let alpha be some new variable, and I differentiate this whole thing with respect to alpha, and uh, extremize with respect to alpha, that sets its coefficient, this coefficient to zero. So if I, simul I, can, if I simultaneously solve uh, that the derivative of this with respect to all the n's and with respect to alpha, those are all zero, and solve for the little n sub n's, then I've maximized this and set this thing to zero. So it's just a clever trick. So once we, I've done that, this is 0, so it doesn't change what this function is. It's still the function that we want it to maximize. And we'll do the same thing with the energy. So we have to do it three times for the three different cases. So the first case is when the particles were distingu distinguishable. Plug in what we found for Q. 
So we'll get a log n factorial. And then the log of the product becomes a sum of the logs. So we'll get n sub n log <coughs> dn, because we have dn to the power n sub n. And on the bottom, we had an n factorial. So we get a minus log n factorial. And there's a minus alpha n sub n from there, minus beta n sub n d sub n. And then there's some constant terms. So there's plus alpha n plus beta times e from here and here. So in the question, someone asked what's a physical example of Stirling's approximation, which we're about to use. So I don't think there is one, because well, aside from this, it's just some mathematician's trick. So you can write, for large numbers, you can write the log of the factorial, approximately, the number times the log minus the number. So if you guys probably haven't taken asymptotic series, this is one of the early asymptotic series. So it's just a mathematical trick because this is easier to deal with than factorials. Because in physics, you don't usually see factorials, only in statistics. And we don't like statistics, do we? <laughs> <laughs> so with this trick, we can rewrite our terms factorials. So this is just some constant term. This didn't have a factorial. Here's a factorial. That should be ln sub n, right? The, mm -hmm. the last term you just pointed at. Um, in the factorial. Oh. Oh. This log. No, no, no. Uh, in your, on the right. Yes. So we'll get n sub n log n sub n plus n sub n minus alpha n sub n minus beta n sub n e sub n. Plus our constant terms. So now if I differentiate with respect to n sub n, from here I'll get a log d sub n. 
and I don't have the sum now because I picked a particular value of little n. I'm differentiating with a particular occupation number. So from here we'll get derivative acting on here we'll get log n. here will give us 1 over n times minus n is minus 1. Differentiating here will give plus 1. And we want that to be equal to 0. So the solution is log n over to the other side and exponentiate this. Now we'll do it for fermions. factorial over n sub n factorial over d sub n minus n sub n factorial. Sterling form, Sterling's formula, so we're assuming that d is large, n is large, and this difference is large. side of the sun.
being minus here, right? Is anyone checking my math? No, everyone's lost. Is anyone with me? We took the log of our expression for the total number of states with identical fermions with Lagrange multiplier terms. I put in Sterling's approximation. Distinguishable particles. Now we're doing it for particles that really exist. So okay. distinguishable particles don't exist. If if you have a bunch of electrons, they're all indistinguishable. Oh, 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 like okay, I see what you mean. So so when we are taking a derivative of this g that you made up, and <laughs> this is not the one I made up. This is the log of what we calculated. Or fermions. But, but I mean, you added like this alpha and beta, and then there you have alpha. You said alpha and beta don't matter, but they obviously appear there. Yeah, you have to solve for alpha and beta, which we're going to do later once we get all these formulas in the three different cases. So it doesn't look like we'll do today. Yeah, are alpha and beta going to be the same for all of these? Um, beta is going to be the same. <coughs> Beta is just going to tell us about the temperature. So who, who has our formula for fermions? It was dn factorial over n sub n factorial d sub n minus n sub n factorial. Oh, so when I differentiate this, I'm differentiating with respect to n sub n. There's an extra minus sign here. So I'll get plus times that log. Now we want to set this derivative equal to zero so that we've found the maximum. So I'm um, write this as d sub n minus n sub n <coughs> over n sub n log equals alpha plus beta e. So if I exponentiate that, I can write that as n sub n equals e sub n minus n sub n times e to the minus alpha plus beta, beta e. And then I'll bring this n sub n over to this side. So I'll get 1 plus the exponential. And then I'll divide by 1 plus the exponential. So I'll get the right answer. Drop this video side. 
Who wants to see it for bosons? <laughs> take your word for it. Yeah. Take my word for it if you want. So that's called a Fermi Fermi. So what will what will be different for bosons? Minus minus. Um, so remember the in the factorial there's an there's an n plus d n minus one. Yeah, it's up there. So we'll get a minus one on top and a minus one on the bottom. But the minus one on top is compared to some large number of degeneracies, so we drop it. So for bosons, so there is a minus one here, but we neglect it compared <coughs> to this, so that our formulas look pretty. It's a good approximation. So now. In each case, you'd have to go back and calculate what alpha and beta are. And I guess we'll do that next time. Is this very Okay. Understanding how to drive it yourself is not is not important. Well, it's all in the book too. So you've read it, and now we went over it. The well, what's important is to understand the general principles of where it came from, and then apply it to problems. So are we supposed to be deriving stuff with you in class, or are we supposed to be deriving stuff with David J. Griffiths in the book? You're supposed to have derived it as you were reading through, and then this is just a review to cover any points that you were confused about. So should we care more about the math? Because you spend a lot of time on the math rather than the physics. Should we care more about setting GGDN equal to zero? I mean, those are obviously tools that we'll need in midterms. But we need to understand how to apply the problems, not how to derive them. Are you going to copy? Oh my god.